Anybody remember where we left off? <laughs> we left off with uh, just the prologue in uh, Revelation chapter 1. And uh, we introduced the churches and uh, at least gave them a name. Um, I want to show you a, a, a thing on the screen. Um, a chart that somebody prepared. Um, the... Uh, the churches of the Revelation, and uh, this is going to be uh, sent out to every. Well, that's fine. Let's do that one first. Uh, no, this is good. Um, the The churches are named more or less in order, moving geographically counterclockwise. So uh, the first church mentioned is Ephesus. And if you look at where Ephesus is, north of that is Smyrna, north of that is Pergamum, and then Thyatira, and then Sardis, and Philadelphia. Um, and it's uh, it it makes uh, and Laodicea it makes a loop. And uh, we'll talk about this in a minute, but the you know, this particular map uh, shows the modern roads that connect these cities. But there were Roman roads and the Romans were famous for building roads. And so when the when John had the inspiration to name churches, I'm going to go out on a limb and speculate that the spirit knew that that this represents a circular route that is comprehensive of the churches in this area. And so that we who would read it later on would understand it to mean a comprehensive loop of all churches everywhere. And so we're, we're reminded that the, that the message of revelation, yes, is directed to real honest to goodness, actual churches that existed in the first century. But it's also intended to extend to all churches for all time. And we'll get into that in uh, in just a minute. So a bit of an overview. Um, uh, let's put the other one up there. Ephesus is the church that lost their first love. Smyrna is the church that would suffer persecution. Um, if you look on the chart... There is no complaint against Smyrna. And a lot of times we look at the seven churches of the Revelation, we figure he had a bone to pick with all of them. But Smyrna uh, was uh, uh, simply identified because they would suffer persecution. And there are some, some thoughts as to why that was. Uh, Pergamum is the church that needed to repent. Uh, Thyatira, the church that had a false prophetess. Uh, Sardis was the church that had fallen asleep. Philadelphia was the church that endured patiently. And if there was a complaint against Philadelphia, it was that they were just kind of weak. There was there was not a real uh, uh, accusation against uh, the church at Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love. And then the church at Laodicea, of course, is the church that was lukewarm. And, uh, and so... Uh, we're, we're going to take each of these churches individually, but I wanted you to see them as a whole to know that that the spirit has come. And at the end of, of chapter one, 
He says, um, I know, uh, I'm sorry, the middle of chapter one, uh, when uh, the vision is given to John, chapter one, verse 11, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to these seven churches. And everybody thinks that send it to the seven churches uh, means send it everywhere. Because seven, of course, is going to be used over and over in uh, Revelation to uh, speak to the uh, uh, the completeness of everything. Seven lampstands, seven bowls, seven trumpets, uh, seven churches. And so both the circular pattern in geography and the number seven, they before we even start looking at individual churches, we understand that the scripture expects us to see this as a group. It expects us to see this as, as a as a whole, and that the then the admonitions that were given, while there are specific uh, complaints about particular churches, there is a, a thought that we would uh, see it as a whole. Now there are um, other people that have suggested some other things about this grouping of seven. Uh, the dispensationalists that we talked about um, two or three weeks ago, the the uh, Schofield Reference Bible Group that 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 uh, have organized all of churchdom into dispensations that represent different periods in the church age. Uh, they might say that each of these churches represents a dispensational era. That that. All seven of them are are representative of one of the the eras uh, in the uh, church age. That Ephesus represents the first century, Smyrna the period of persecution. That uh, Pergamum is the age of Constantine the emperor, uh, Thyatira the Middle Ages, Sardis the age of the Reformation, Philadelphia the time of our modern missionary movement and then Laodicea, the apostasy of the last days. And, and I, I can see why people do this. Any handle I can get is hopeful to me. You know, Revelation is about to get mysterious, right? We're, we're about to have bowls and trumpets and horses and beasts and multiple heads and horns. And, and so any handle we can get is helpful. I, I think the argument for... Uh, just looking at this from a, a dispensational point of view is kind of weak, but it is a, a suggestion that has been made. Um, give you an idea, you looked at the map, the, the distances of the cities uh, relatively close. They were probably 50 miles apart, with the exception of the distance between Laodicea back around to Ephesus, that was about 100 miles. So this is you know, they, they would consider 25 miles a day's walk, um, maybe two days walk. Um, so so at most, you're walking a week on a good Roman road to get from Laodicea all the way back. And the Roman roads were really good. Uh, they had sidewalks. They had drainage. Uh, they built elaborate bridges over the creeks and streams. Uh, some of those bridges still exist. Imagine a a bridge anybody builds today lasted two thousand years. They're they're talking about having to replace the Eisenhower Interstate System, and it was built starting in the fifties. 
and so the the 1950s sorry mm -hmm. uh so so these these were uh it, it was a a well-traveled group of churches that understandably represented the known world now everybody knew there was a world beyond that right um I, I get really geeky. I, I spent way too much time studying Roman roads. Um, in Ephesus, uh, there's actually a, a spur that goes up to one of the more famous Roman highways, the uh, the Via Ignatia, which goes basically across the top of Macedonia. Uh, if anybody remembers in your mind your your mental map of of Italy, uh, Greece, and then Asia. So you've got Italy on the Mediterranean Sea or the Ionian Sea, and then the eastern edge of the boot is the the I'm sorry the Ionian Sea is between Italy and Greece, and then the Aegean Sea is between Greece and uh, Asia. And so the the Ignatian way or the Via Ignatia went across the top of Macedonia through Philippi, which was the first church established in Europe, and then on across all the way to Constantinople. Then it was called Byzantium, and now it's called Istanbul. And so that that Roman road went all the way across. Well, it wrapped down where Ephesus is and was known to have a sea passage across the Aegean to a little port city near Neapolis, which then had a continuation of the same road all the way to Rome. So if, if you were saying from Rome, how do I get to Constantinople or Byzantium? You just take the, the Via Ignatia. And it's it's a continuing road. It's like Route 66. It goes everywhere, and and that's the way the Romans were. So the the Spirit is writing to the churches, and He's not wanting us to see some dusty outpost church in the middle of nowhere. He's wanting us to see Ephesus, a town of 250 thousand people at that time, with a Colosseum, a library. A phenomenal temple, multiple temples, and all that comes with being a large city. And so uh, we kind of uh, pick up today. Now, let me give you one more list before we dive into Ephesians, uh, I mean, to the church at Ephesus in uh, chapter two. All of the letters have a particular pattern. Okay, you when. When we see, we'll see a phrase a lot. I know your deeds. I know your works, but I have this against you. That's a that's a catchphrase that he uses over and over. So the pattern uh, that pretty well uh, recognized is that each of these letters had an address to a particular congregation to the church at fill in the blank. They all had an introduction of Jesus. So so like in Ephesus that we're looking at tonight, um, he says to the angel of the church at Ephesus, an angel there uh, is, is probably uh, referring to the church leaders. Uh, it's, it's not 
he's not trying to say I'm communicating with a heavenly being. Uh, the, the word angel there probably means elders or bishops or pastors or even the, the spirit of the church. So you, you might say I, I'm writing to DBC, to the pastors, the teachers, to the good people of DBC. And so there's an address to the church. And then he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So it, there's an introduction that these words are coming from Jesus. Then there's a statement about the condition of the church. There's a verdict regard, from Jesus regarding that condition. A command from Jesus to the church. A general exhortation to all Christians. And then some promise of reward. I'll go through the list again so that it's just kind of tight. There's an address to a particular congregation, and it's named. There's an introduction of Jesus in some way. There's a statement about the condition of the church. There's a command from Jesus to the church, and we're going to see this at Ephesus. There's a general exhortation for all Christians, and then there's a, a promise of reward. So let's look at Ephesus. Last week, we talked a little bit about Ephesus, the, the city, um, and how many of the scriptural uh, admonitions were either to or about Ephesus. Do you remember what some of them are? Uh, that we found the description of the founding of the church in Acts. Uh, Timothy was likely the pastor of the church. So first and second Timothy had a backdrop of Ephesus. Uh, obviously, uh, Revelation, uh, First Peter, that 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 this was a significant sort of a a bell cow church. Um, I, I don't know what uh, uh, the, the probably the one that comes to mind right away is First Baptist Atlanta under Doctor Stanley. That that when when that church did something other churches took notice when when a, a big church germantown in memphis or bellevue in memphis or first baptist church of dallas with uh first uh, pastor dr truett and then uh dr Criswell, when when they did something people take notice and in our little community uh when we built main street the newspaper sent somebody out here to take pictures and so when the but he's saying that Ephesus is so uh, significant, and maybe that's why he started with them. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think it's an accident that it's geographically in a, a bit of a circle, but but the this was by far the largest of the churches, by far the largest of the cities. It wasn't the capital. Pergamum was the capital of the region. This was a Roman district called Asia. And so they had other districts that stretched uh, as far as uh, central Turkey. Uh, how do we know that? Geography people. The city that we've been talking about, and that's the capital of Turkey. It was called Constantinople. So Constantine reached that far and he actually located his... Uh, center of power in Constantinople rather than Rome, uh, which caused a bit of a stir. Uh, so 
It was the provincial uh, uh, capital of Asia, but it wasn't the, uh, the seat of the government. And so um, it was, uh, it, it, when, when we went to Ephesus, uh, it, it's almost a little uh, disarming because you you go to Ephesus and you arrive there. Most most tourists arrive there on a cruise ship, and the the cruise ship terminal there at Ephesus is pretty uh, impressive. The ship comes all the way in. It's a, you don't have to get in a little tender boat. You you actually come all the way in. But when you come into the cruise terminal and get off, you're on the the shore of the Aegean. And there's a huge grassy area that was the harbor at Ephesus. And that harbor reached all the way two or three more miles inland. And so it was a, a safe harbor. The problem was the rivers that dumped into it kept silting it up. And over time, they lost the harbor completely. So in your mind's eye, when you hear that Ephesus was a port city, that it was commercial, that it had all kinds of traffic, that the ships would be unloaded and then the Ignatian Way and on to Constantinople or or north to the uh, northern tip of the Aegean Sea and back across to, to Macedonia. When, when you hear that, you go, well, it's two miles away. Even the ruins are two miles away. Well, the harbor came almost all the way in. And so it was a center of commercial trade, uh, the arts and certainly religion. And that's sort of what uh, we need to talk about mostly tonight. Some of you are looking at the clock. Sorry. He says to the angel in the church at Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He introduced us to that back in chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. And so it's very clear that the reference here is that Jesus is the one who holds the lampstands, and the lampstands represent the churches. And so uh, picture in your mind the, the greeting to the church, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the, the elders of the church at Ephesus. Right. Here are the words of him who holds the lampstand. So these are the words of Jesus. Now, I, I don't know if you remember us saying last week that um, Ephesus was the center of cultic worship. It had lots of temples. It had the temple of Diana or Artemis. It had the temple of Domitian. Uh, the temple to Artemis uh, or Diana, a fertility goddess, goddess. Um, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There were 127 pillars around the edge of this temple. And uh, it was incredible. Uh, each pillar was 60 feet tall. And uh, up on a hill, uh, we think usually the Acropolis is, Rome, is uh, in uh, Athens, right? 
but an acropolis was simply a hill. And almost every town had an acropolis. And the most prominent of the temples in Athens, of course, the Parthenon, uh, in Ephesus, the temple to Diana was on the Acropolis, the hill that overlooks the city. And so uh, um, Ephesus was um, a stronghold of Satan. I, I don't think that's too harsh. I, I think that the, the pagan worship, uh, they even laundered their money through the temple at Artemis. It, it, it served as a bank. Can you even imagine how crazy it would be to put preachers in charge of your money? I mean, you, you do well enough by giving us tithes and offerings, but we try to do the best we can, but I, I can't even imagine the church being a bank. But that's the way it was. And so I, I, I want to give you a picture that this, when, when the Spirit says, I want you to have a word for the church, it was a church with the, the potential for influence. That's what I keep talking about here with Gunway. That 20,000 cars a day drive past this church. And, and what do they see? What, what do they know? What, what influence do they sense? Are we in the community? Are we making a difference in the community? Are we loving God? Are we loving people? Are we making disciples? Are we making a difference? Does, does our world know about us? And the Spirit is saying to Ephesus, your world knows about you, but you're squandering an opportunity. And it will surprise you what I think the opportunity was. So we better get busy. Um, just as a heads up, the church was founded by Paul, Acts chapter 19. We know that Apollos ministered there, Priscilla and Aquila ministered there, Paul stayed there for three years, Timothy eventually was the pastor there. I told you last week or the week before, I believe that's where the Apostle John died. Uh, I, I think that he was uh, released from Patmos when he was a weak old man. Uh, shortly after he wrote the Revelation, or maybe he finished it at Ephesus, we don't know. But uh, but almost all of church history lines up behind the idea that John uh, spent his later days there uh, in Ephesus. So it was an incredibly important city. So Jesus knows about the church. Says the he he who walks with the lampstands says, I know your works. I know your deeds. Some of your uh, scriptures might translate that with the word toil. And I know your patient endurance. So the spirit is saying to the church, you are doing good things. I, I know that you're, you're working hard for the kingdom. You stayed unified as a church. You're, you're, you're doing the right things. Interesting, huh? He says you're, you're working to the point of exhaustion. That's the word toil. And yet you demonstrate patient endurance. The Greeks did this a lot. Uh, they, they grouped words that were commonly used together. Uh, I, I 
Uh, our friend who was staying at our home this week uh, uh, just finished a 500-page dissertation on one Greek word. And uh, she's a linguist. So she was talking about how some words in Greek, and, and her word was they travel together. Faith, hope, and love, these remain. Uh, and so these these three expressions travel together. I know your deeds. I know your work. I know your endurance. And he's going to come back to that in a minute. But but that is a cliche that he not a cliche, but that's a a, a descriptor. Like when we pray, lead, guide, and direct. Lord bless the gift and the giver. There there are words that travel together and have meaning, especially in church world. And so he says, I know you don't. You don't even bear with those who are evil. You, you don't tolerate those who act out. Wow. And you test those who call themselves apostles. What kind of testing is that? Doctrinal. You, you know your scripture. Somebody, crazy man, says something from the pulpit, you call him out. Because you say, that's not right. You know your doctrine. You know your scripture, you know what Jesus said, you know the Sermon on the Mount, you you know your stuff. Okay, now I'm a little confused. Work, deeds, endurance, kick out the people who act out, you don't tolerate poor doctrine. He says, I know, verse 3, you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my sake you don't you don't tolerate those who are evil you're bearing up for my sake and you have not grown weary and so he circled back from that triad of words i know your your deeds your toil to the point of weariness and your endurance in it and i know that you have you have pushed on for purity in our in, in life and and anytime they say purity they're talking about sexual purity but here he adds a layer you're also pressing on doctrinal purity you're 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 not tolerating immorality you're not tolerating uh, anybody who has less than accurate sense of what the scriptures say and what they mean Y'all are all thinking the same thing I'm thinking, right? So what's the problem? He says the problem is that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Some of your translations say what? You have lost your first love. Now, let me do a Wednesday night special. This is the stuff you don't get on Sunday. The word for right doctrine is orthodoxy. The word for right action is orthopraxy. So he is commanding their orthodoxy. He's saying, you are by the numbers. You, you are spot on. You don't tolerate poor doctrine. You don't tolerate sexual mischief. You don't tolerate greed you don't tolerate your your leaders acting up orthodoxy right down the roman road 
He said, but you've lost love. <laughs> but canceled out everything he just said because he commanded us to love. He, he's, it's, it's, and he's going to come back and even say more about how, how he commands them. Because this sounds harsh. You've lost your first love. And so our, I, I don't have to tell you what our four core values are. We say them all the time. Love God, love people. And so the question here is, have they lost their love for God? Or have they lost their love for people? Or both? Or as one writer said, are you so interested in orthodoxy? That you have diluted your orthopraxy. You're, you're, you're so committed to doctrine that you love doctrine more than you love people. And I I'm sorry, but I can't help but think about some of the arguments we have today in church world that we're having all kinds of disputes, even in the Southern Baptist Convention, about how you do things and people being labeled unbiblical and unscriptural, and, and you're not you're not holding to right doctrine. And the the way that this discussion is going down, it wouldn't surprise me if the spirit said to their churches, You've lost your first love. This hit me right between the eyes today as I was studying. You've lost the ability to love. And when, when you lose orthopraxy, orthodoxy suffers. Uh, I, Sheila, it's, it's harsh to say that, that it cancels it all out. Because he, he obviously thinks it counts for something. But he says, you know, you talk about the big butts in the Bible. And when he says you you're you're doing the right things, you're working, you're toiling, your deeds, your patience, your endurance. You don't suffer those who who bring poor doctrine. You don't suffer those who who bring immorality. Yet you have lost the ability to love. And I, I, I there's something he's going to say in just a minute that sort of. Uh, reinforces that but he's he's real strong in the remedy and, and again there there are words that travel together and there are three here he says what do you do about this <laughs> I teared up because on the corner of my computer screen is the a picture of me and the guy who led me to the Lord and he says, remember, remember. You know, when my kids were little and we would take them to a, a store somewhere, uh, my kids were strong-willed. <clears throat> That's no surprise to any of you. But I would always say to them, if you get separated from me, if you can't find me, you come back to the front of the store. Come back to this, this place where this this nice security guard is, and you stand right by his leg, and I will come find you. And my my point was, you go back to the place you came at. And sometimes 
we get so caught up in our orthodoxy and our administration and our deeds and our toil and our endurance that we've lost the joy that I see when a child looks up at the person that's about to baptize them. We've lost the that, that pure wonder that Jesus could save even me. That Jesus could say, your sins will not count against you because I have shed blood on the cross for you. And when we lose that childlike wonder, we have lost a little bit of our first love. And so he says, remember. Then he says, repent. And repent in scripture, the the breakdown of that word, you are walking in a straight line in one direction. You plant your feet. You make a pretty demonstrative 180 degree turn and you walk the other way. All of those components are necessary to understand repentance. You are headed in a direction. You, for whatever reason, decide that's not a direction you want to go. Now, men who drive cars, you hate to repent on the highway. <laughs> you don't care how lost you are. You don't care if you're getting more lost by the minute. For you to turn around is an admission of weakness. Headed in that direction. Stop, turn around, go the other direction. And so you remember where you got on this journey. You're able to recognize that you are headed in a wrong direction, that you've taken a, a turn, and that turn has, has taken you uh, almost full circle back towards the sin that, that you were forgiven for. Repentance is not a thing that you do one time, God forgives you, you become a Christian. Repentance for me is every day. And if I had to set a an alarm on my watch to remind me to repent, you would be so aggravated <laughs> because it would be buzzing constantly. So he says, remember and repent. And then he says, do the things you did at first. Go back to the, the deeds that you did in response. Now, does anybody remember what Paul wrote to the Ephesians when he tried to explain the whole process of grace to them? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Anybody got those memorized? For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And that's not of works. It's not of yourselves. Even the faith is not yours. You, you're given the faith lest you should boast. What does 2.10 say? For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works. So when Paul is writing the letter to the Ephesians, and he's helping them understand this transaction of grace, he's saying, you remember the works that you did when you started? You were created to do those. Do you remember how you, you went out of your way to love people? You went out of your way to, to help people? You went out of your way to, to, to adore God, to worship him, 
without strings, without being proud of your knowledge, of without being proud of how doctrinally pure you are, <laughs> without being all full of yourselves. You remember how you used to do that? Do that again. Go back. Remember, repent, do the works you did at first. And so there's this, this incredible call, but then he kind of hammers them. He says, if you don't do this, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now, from its place, does this mean they're no longer safe? Anybody remember Sunday when he says, I'm holding the lampstands with my right hand? I'm not going to let you go. But he's saying your opportunity is missed. Your your uh, your opportunity is missed. Uh, he gave him a stern warning. He will remove his light. When their lampstand was removed, they can no longer be a church. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. A church without love is not a church. <laughs> a church without love is, is not by definition what he called us to do. Uh, he, he said, if, if you don't love each other, you don't love me. And I think we've got it, at least the language, right? Love God, love people. That's, that's what he told us to do. What are the greatest commandments? Love God, love people. And so he says, you, you will cease to exist as a church. Now, the good news is that the, the historians in the second and third and fourth century, they seem to celebrate that Ephesus got it, that they became known again as a church that, that loved people. But uh, for now, Jesus has given them a very stern warning. Okay, let me finish this up. I think I can do this in 10 minutes. We'll see. He says, yet this you have. So it's it's almost like, I, I don't know if you've ever had to deal with an employee as a manager and and you just really chewed somebody out because they, they messed up pretty bad and and you had to point out to them what they cost the company or or what this action did and how far it set us back. And uh and and after you chew them out, you go, man, did I just destroy somebody? Maybe I better come back and say something nice. Maybe I better circle back and give them a compliment. And so he does. He says, you, and, and what a strong word, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now you're going, who in the world is a Nicolaitan? Don't know that I'm going to have time to deal with this on Sunday morning. It is possible that this is a cult that spun out of the uh, deacon who is named in Acts chapter 6, Nikolai or Nikolaus. And uh, it is possible that this is a, a, a deacon who kind of got his own little following, kind of got his own little tribe. And uh, and they became known as the Nicolaitans. That's one theory. 
Another theory is that the, the uh, origin of the word Nicolaitans itself comes from a combination of words that say to exert power. And uh, the thought that most scholars give this, and I, I, I kind of agree with it. Uh, notice how I separated myself from the word scholar. Uh, most of them believe that however you read it, you have to pair it with what he's already said to them, that you've lost your first love. Why have you lost your first love? Maybe you're just a little too caught up with doctrine. The Nicolaitans were the predecessors of a group called the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, -S, Gnostics, the, the G-N is the name. The Gnostics were kind of a knowledge cult. They, they, they kind of existed to say, we know more than you. It's a mystery and you're you're not able to understand it because you're spiritually inferior or or you just haven't learned enough yet. Uh, come come. I, I will I will reveal to you the mysteries. And and there is there is truth to that. We we want to sit with Bible teachers who can help us understand the word. But the idea that the word was meant to be revealed only to a few is heresy. The word is meant to be understood. It's meant to be embraced. It's meant to be shared. And so in this particular uh, instance, maybe we go back to the idea that they loved their knowledge and they loved their doctrine and they loved their orthodoxy. But, and they hate the Nicolaitans. They not the hate the Nicolaitans. They hate the work of the Nicolaitans. And the Nicolaitans might have said, uh, uh, we are uh, the keepers of the mystery, which would be what Gnosticism was, especially by the third century. We are the, the keepers of the mystery. Um, we, we, we know more than you. Um, let's see, one uh, writer said it this way. Um, he said the Nicolaitans, even if they were followers of the Nicholas, who was one of the seven, they lead lives of um, a widespread combination of correct doctrine, but they didn't think the doctrine applied to them. That's the the real issue that he had with the Nicolaitans is that they they say they have the right doctrine, but they don't believe that it needed to govern their moral choices. So you go back to the fact that the Ephesian church didn't put up with immorality. They didn't put it up with with it with people who claimed spiritual knowledge. The the Nicolaitans were said to be this weird combination of we know what it takes to be saved, and we believe we're saved no matter what, so it doesn't matter how we act. So they were known to be indulgent with, uh, with the uh, uh, intoxication, with the immorality, with uh, the sexual indulgence. And so you've got this odd combination of people, and the Spirit says to the church at Ephesus, 
You can't stand the hypocrisy of those people. And so sandwiched between, you're doing things really well. I know your works. I know your deeds. I know your toil. I know your endurance. I know that you don't put up with immorality. I know that you don't put up with uh, uh, with with people who are, are are foolish. I know that you hold to right doctrine. I, I know that you despise the the active hypocrisy by this this known group called the Nicolaitans. But somewhere in the mix, you forgot to love. Boy. Kind of says it all, right? You don't need a whole lot of Greek words parsed out to understand love. You know, the love of God is to say that He is priority in our life. When you are, when 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 love is is what you do, what you're known for, and what I think He's telling the Ephesians is what He's telling us. Yes. You are in a culture that says everything is okay. You're, you're in a world that that says that if, if I want something to be true, it is whether the evidence backs it up or not. He said, but don't be that church that's so proud of being right that you are no longer righteous. Don't be that church that's known for, they don't let your kind in here. They don't put up with this. They don't let you in here. We are known as a church that helps people deal with their messiness. We're known as a church that helps people uh, kind of work their way through brokenness. If you're here on a Monday night, you'll walk past three different recovery groups. You'll walk past a, a lobby full of internationals who are just trying to learn English. You'll, you come here on Wednesday nights and the, the, the children are downstairs. The women are in discipleship. We're, we're all trying to learn how to deal with the messiness. And if he has a word to this church, as we look towards the future of our church, let's keep our orthodoxy, but let's don't sacrifice our orthopraxy. Let's, let's, let's keep doing right things for the right reasons. Let's stay to the scripture. Let's, let's figure out what it says for us to do, then have the courage to preach it, have the courage to do it. Let's call out sin for what it is, but let's not quit loving. Let's not quit loving each other. Um, Tertullian in the in the third century talking about the Christian church, he said, see how they love each other. Um, let, let the old song, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Let that be our, our, our marker. Well, let's also love God enough to learn about him and also to know him. Also to know him in our in our prayer, in our devotion. Let our, our worship not just be rote singing the songs let us let us think about what we're doing and engage when we take communion on sunday paul said let a man examine himself let's let's take seriously the sin that he has forgiven us of let's remember let's repent let's do the things we did at first all right that's all i got
and I used all the time allotted. Uh, and Sunday, we will have the, the State of the Church message. Today is eight years since I was uh, asked to be the senior pastor of this church. So today is my eighth anniversary. And uh, glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, don't need Thank flowers. you. Thank you. We'll see you guys on Sunday and we'll talk about the state of our church, the state of the church at Ephesus, and then we'll take communion together.